support Black Clock Audio Tales by going to the Patreon link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. This month, the month of May, we are doing uh, the space operas Skylark of Space and Skylark 3 by E.E. Smith. Thank you again for listening. And for Radio Free Oleander, we'll be talking about Star Wars, or the Star Wars trilogy, or the Star Wars series, or Star Wars as a phenomena this May. Check out our show notes for where to find us, where to subscribe, where to find out, where to find us on social media, where to suggest stuff, where to say, hey, I was listening to Dracula, and there's a page missing that happened, and I fixed it. Black Clock Audio Tales, the month of May. Recording by Richard Kilmer. The Declaration of War The capital city of Fenachrone lay in a jungle plain, surrounded by towering hills. A perfect circle of immense diameter, its buildings of uniform height, of identical design, and constructed of the same dull gray translucent metal, were arranged in concentric circles, like the annular rings seen upon the stump of a tree. Between each ring of buildings and the one next inside it, there were lagoons, lawns, and groves, lagoons of tepid, sullenly steaming water, lawns which were veritable carpets of lush, rank rushes and of dark mosses, groves of palms, gigantic ferns, bamboos, and numerous tropical growths unknown to earthly botany. At the very edge of the city began jungle, unrelieved and primeval, the impenetrable, unconquerable jungle, possible to only such meteorological conditions as obtained there. Wind there was none, nor sunshine. Only occasionally was the sun of that reeking world visible through the omnipresent fog, a pale, wan disk. Always the atmosphere was one of oppressive, hot, humid vapor. In the exact center of the city rose an immense structure, a terraced cone of buildings, as though immense disks of smaller and smaller diameter had been piled one upon the other. In these apartments dwelt the nobility and the high officials of the Fenachrone. In the highest disk of all, invisible, away from the surface of the planet, because of the all-enshrouding mist, were the apartments of the emperor of that monstrous race. Seated upon low, heavily built metal stools, about the great table in the council room were Fenor, emperor of the Fenachrone, Fenimal, his general in command, and the full council of eleven of the planet. Being projected in the air before them was a three-dimensional moving, talking picture, the report of the sole survivor of the warship that had attacked the Skylark II. In exact accordance with the facts as the engineer knew them, the details of the battle and complete information concerning the conquerors were shown, as vividly as though the scene were being reenacted before their eyes, they saw the captive revive in the violet 
and heard the conversation between the engineer, Duquesne, and Loring. In the Violet, they sped for days and weeks with ever-mounting velocity toward the system of the Fenachrone. Finally, power reversed, they approached it, saw the planet looming large, and passed within the detector screen. Duquesne tightened the controls of the attractors, which had never been entirely released from their prisoner, thus again pinning the Fenachrone helplessly against the wall. Just to be sure you don't try to start something, he explained coldly. You have done well so far, but I'll run things myself from now on, so that you can't steer us into a trap. Now tell me exactly how to go about getting one of your vessels. After we get it, I'll see about letting you go. Fool, you are too late. You would have been too late, even had you killed me out there in space and had fled at your utmost acceleration. Did you but know it? You are as dead even now. Our patrol is upon you. Duquesne whirled, snarling, and his automatic and that of Loring were leaping out when an awful acceleration threw them flat upon the floor. The magnetic force snatched away their weapons, and a heat ray reduced them to two small piles of gray ash. Immediately thereafter, a beam of force from the patrolling cruiser neutralized the retractors bearing upon the captive, and he was transferred to the rescuing vessel. The emergency report ended, and with a brief torpedo message from flagship Y-427W resumed at point of interruption. The report from the ill-fated vessel continued the story of its own destruction, but added little in the already complete knowledge of the disaster. Fenner of the Fenachrome leaped up from the table, his terrible, flame-shot eyes glaring venomously, teetering in berserk rage upon his block-like legs. But he did not for one second take his full attention from the report until it had been completed. Then he seized the nearest object, which happened to be his chair, and with all his enormous strength hurled it across the floor, where it lay a tattered, twisted, shapeless mass of metal. Thus we shall treat the entire race of the accursed beings who have done this, he stormed, his heavy voice reverberating throughout the room. Torture, dismemberment, and annihilation to every... Fenner, a fenachrone, a tremendous voice, a full octave lower than Fenner's own terrific bass, and of ear-shattering volume and timber in that dense atmosphere boomed from the general wave speaker, its deafening roar drowning out Fenner's raging voice and every other lesser sound. Fenner of the Fenachrome, I know that you hear, for every general wave speaker upon your reeking planet is voicing my words. Listen well, for this warning shall not be repeated. I am speaking by and with the authority of the overlord of the green system, which you know as the central system of this, our galaxy. Upon some of our many planets, there are those who wish to destroy you without warning and out of hand. But the overlord has ruled that you may continue to live, provided you heed these, his commands, which he has instructed me to lay upon you. 
you must forthwith abandon forever your vainglorious and senseless scheme of universal conquest. You must immediately withdraw your every vessel to within the boundaries of your solar system, and you must keep them there henceforth. You are allowed five minutes to decide whether or not you will obey these commands. If no answer has been received at the end of the calculated time, the overlord will know that you have defied him, and your entire race shall perish utterly. Well, he knows that your very existence is an affront to all real civilization. But he holds that even such vileness incarnate as are the Fenachrone may perchance have some obscure place in the great scheme of things, and he will not destroy you if you are content to remain in your proper place upon your own dank and steaming world. Through me, the two thousand three hundred and forty-six Sackner Carfon of Dasor, the Overlord has given you your first, last, and only warning. Heed its every word, or consider it the formal declaration of a war of utter and complete extinction. The awful voice ceased, and pandemonium reigned in the council hall. Obeying a common impulse, each fenachrone leaped to his feet, raised his huge arms aloft, and roared out rage and defiance. Fenner snapped a command, and the others fell silent as he began howling out orders. Operator, send recall torpedoes instantly to every outlying vessel. He scuttled over to one of the private band speakers. X-794PW, radio general call for all vessels above E-blank-E to concentrate on battle stations. Throw out full-power defensive screens and send the full series of detector screens out to the limit. Guards and patrols on invasion plan XB-218. The immediate steps are taken, gentlemen. He turned to the council, his rage unabated. Never before have we, supermen of the Fenachrone, been so insulted and so belittled. That upstart overlord will regret that warning to the instant of his death, which shall be exquisitely postponed. All of you of the council know your duties in such a time as this. You are excused to perform them. General Fenimal, you will stay with me. We shall consider together such other details as require attention. After all the others had left the room, Fenor turned to the general. Have you any immediate suggestions? I would suggest sending at once for Ravendal, the chief of the laboratories of science. He certainly heard the warning and may be able to cast some light upon how it could have been sent and from what point it came. The emperor spoke into another sender, and soon the scientist entered, carrying in his hand a small instrument upon which a blue light blazed. Do not talk here. There is grave danger of being overheard by that self-styled overlord, he directed tersely, and led the way into a ray-proof compartment of his private laboratory, several floors below. It may interest you to know that you have sealed the doom of our planet and of all the fenachrome upon it, Ravindeau spoke savagely. Dare you speak thus to me, your sovereign? roared Fenor. 
I dare so, replied the other coldly, when all the civilization of a planet has been given to destruction by the unreasoning stupidity and insatiable rapacity of its royalty, allegiance to such royalty is at an end. Sit down, he thundered, as Fenner sprang to his feet. You are no longer in your throne room, surrounded by servile guards and by automatic rays. You are in my laboratory, and by a movement of my finger I can hurl you into eternity. The general, aware now that the warning was of much more serious import than he had suspected, broke into the acrimonious debate. Never mind questions of royalty, he snapped. The safety of the race is paramount. Am I to understand that the situation is really grave? It is worse than grave. It is desperate. The only hope for even ultimate triumph is for as many of us as possible to flee instantly clear out of the galaxy, in the hope that we may escape the certain destruction to be dealt out to us by the overlord of the green system. You speak folly, surely, returned Fenimol. Our science is, must be superior to any other in the universe. So thought I, until this warning came in, and I had an opportunity to study it. Then I knew that we are opposed by a science immeasurably higher than our own. Such vermin as though two, whom our smallest scouts captured without battle, vessel and all, in what respects is their science even comparable to ours? Not those vermin, no. The one who calls himself the Overlord, that one is our master. He can penetrate the impenetrable shield of force and can operate mechanisms of pure force behind it. He can heterodyne, transmit, and use infra-rays, of whose very existence we were in doubt until recently. While that warning was being delivered, he was in all probability watching you and listening to you face to face. You, in your ignorance, supposed his warning borne by the ether, and thought, therefore, he must be close to this system. He is very probably at home in the central system, and at this moment preparing the forces he intends to hurl against us. The emperor fell back into his seat, all his pomposity gone, but the general stiffened eagerly and went straight to the point. How do you know these things? Largely by deduction. We of the school of science have cautioned you repeatedly to postpone the day of conquest until we should have mastered the secrets of sub-rays and of infra-rays. Unheeding, you of war have gone ahead with your plans, while we of science have continued the study. We know a little of the sub-rays, which we use every day, and practically nothing of infra-rays. Some time ago, I developed a detector for infra-rays, which come to us from outer space in small quantities, and which are also liberated by our power plants. It has been regarded as a scientific curiosity only, but this day it proved of real value. The instrument in my hand is such a detector. At normal impacts of infra-rays, its light is blue, as you see it now. Some time before the warning sounded, it turned a brilliant red, indicating that an intense source of infra-rays was operating in the neighborhood. 
By plotting lines of force, I located the source as being in the air of the council hall, almost directly above the table of state. Therefore, the carrier wave must have come through our whole system of screens without so much as giving an alarm. That fact alone proves it to have been an infra-ray. Furthermore, it carried through those screens and released in the council room a system of forces of great complexity, as is shown by their ability to broadcast from those pure forces without material aid a modulated wave in the exact frequency required to energize our general speakers. As soon as I perceived these facts, I threw about the council room a screen of force entirely impervious to anything longer than ultra-rays. The warning continued, and then I knew that our fears were only too well grounded, that there is in this galaxy, somewhere, a race vastly superior to ours in science, and that our destruction is a matter of hours, perhaps of minutes. Are these ultra-rays, then, of such a dangerous character, asked the general? I had supposed them to be of such infinitely high frequency that they could be of no practical use whatever. I have been trying for years to learn something of their nature, but beyond working out a method for their detection and a method of possible analysis that may or may not succeed, I can do nothing with them. It is perfectly evident, however, that they lie below the level of the ether, and therefore have a velocity of propagation infinitely greater than that of light. You may see for yourself, then, that to a science able to guide and control them, to make them act as carrier waves for any other desired frequency, to do all of which the overlord has this day shown himself capable, they should theoretically afford weapons before which our every defense would be precisely as efficacious as so much vacuum. Think a moment. You know that we know nothing fundamental concerning even our servants, the sub-rays. If we really knew them, we could utilize them in thousands of ways as yet unknown to us. We work with the merest handful of forces, empirically, while it is practically certain that the enemy has at his command the entire spectrum, visible and invisible, embracing untold thousands of bands of unknown but terrific potentiality. But he spoke of a calculated time necessary before our answer could be received. They must, then, be using vibrations in the ether. Not necessarily, not even probably. Would we ourselves reveal unnecessarily to an enemy the possession of such rays? Do not be childish. No, Fenimol, and you, Fenner of the Phrenochrone. Instant and headlong flight is our only hope of present salvation and of ultimate triumph. Flight to a far distant galaxy, since upon no point in this one shall we be safe from the infra-beams of that self-styled overlord. You sniveling coward, you pulsillanimous bookworm. Fenner had regained his customary spirit as the scientist explained upon what grounds his fears were based. Upon such a tenuous fabric of evidence, would you have such a people as ours turn tail like beaten hounds? Because, forsooth, 
you detect a peculiar vibration in the air, will you have it that we are to be invaded and destroyed forthwith by a race of supernatural ability? Bah! Your calamity-howling clan has delayed the day of conquest from year to year. I more than half believe that you yourself or some other treacherous poltroon of your ignominious breed prepared and sent that warning in a weak and rat-brained attempt to frighten us into again postponing the day of conquest. Know now, spineless weakling, that the time is ripe, and that the Fenachrone in their might are about to strike. But you, foul traducer of your emperor, shall die the death of the cur you are. The hand within his tunic moved, and a vibrator burst into operation. Coward I may be, and pusillanimous, and other things as well, the scientist replied stonily, but unlike you, I am not a fool. These walls, this very atmosphere, are fields of force that will transmit no rays directed by you. You weak-minded scion of a depraved and obscene house, arrogant, overbearing, rapacious, ignorant. Your brain is too feeble to realize that you are clutching at the universe hundreds of years before the time has come. You, by your overweening pride and folly, have doomed our beloved planet, the most perfect planet in the galaxy, in its grateful warmth and wonderful dampness and fogginess, and our entire race to certain destruction. Therefore you, fool and dolt that you are, shall die, for too long already have you ruled. He flicked a finger, and the body of the monarch shuddered, as though an intolerable current of electricity had traversed it, collapsed, and lay still. It was necessary to destroy this that was our ruler, Ravindo explained to the general. I have long known that you are not in favor of such precipitate action in the conquest. Hence all this talking upon my part. You know that I hold the honor of Fenachrone dear, and that all my plans are for the ultimate triumph of our race. Yes, and I begin to suspect that those plans have not been made since the warning was received. My plans have been made for many years, and ever since an immediate conquest was decided upon, I have been assembling and organizing the means to put them into effect. I would have left this planet in any event shortly after the departure of the Grand Fleet upon its final expedition. Fenner's senseless defiance of the Overlord has only made it necessary for me to expedite my leave-taking. What do you intend to do? I have a vessel twice as large as the largest warship Fenner boasted completely provisioned, armed, and powered for a cruise of one hundred years at high acceleration. It is hidden in a remote fastness of the jungle. I am placing in that vessel a group of the finest, brainiest, most highly advanced and intelligent of our men and women, with their children. We shall journey at our highest speed to a certain distant galaxy, where we shall seek out a planet similar in atmosphere temperature and mass to the one upon which we now dwell. There we shall multiply and continue our studies, and from that planet, in the day when we shall have attained sufficient knowledge, there shall descend upon the central system of this galaxy the vengeance of the Fenachrone. 
that vengeance will be all the sweeter for the fact that it shall have been delayed. But how about libraries, apparatus, and equipment? Suppose that we do not live long enough to perfect that knowledge, and with only one vessel and a handful of men, we could not cope with that accursed overlord and his navies of the void. Libraries are aboard, so are much apparatus and equipment. What we cannot take with us, we can build. As for the knowledge I mentioned, it may not be attained in your lifetime, nor in mine. But the racial memory of the Fenachrome is long, as you know, and even if the necessary problems are not solved until our descendants are sufficiently numerous to populate an entire planet, yet will those descendants wreck the vengeance of the Fenachrome upon the races of that hated one, the Overlord, before they go on with the conquest of the universe. Many questions will arise, of course, but they shall be solved. Enough. Time passes rapidly, and all too long I have talked. I am using this time upon you because in my organization there is no soldier, and the Fenachrome of the future will need your great knowledge of warfare. Are you going with us? Yes. Very well. Ravindo led the general through a door and into an airboat lying upon the terrace outside the laboratory. Drive us at speed to your home, where we shall pick up your family. Fenimal took the controls and laid a ray to his home, a ray serving a double purpose. It held the vessel upon its predetermined course through that thick and sticky fog, and also rendered collision impossible, since any two of these controller rays repelled each other to such a degree that no two vessels could take paths which would bring them together. Some such provision had been found necessary ages ago, for all fenachrone craft were provided with the same space-annihilating drive, to which any comprehensible distance was a journey of a few moments, and at that frightful velocity collision meant annihilation. I understand that you could not take any one of the military into your confidence until you are ready to put your plans into effect, the general conceded. How long will it take you to get ready to leave? You have said that haste is imperative, and I therefore assume that you have already warned the other members of the expedition. I flashed the emergency signal before I joined you and Fenner in the council room. Each man of the organization has received that signal, wherever he may have been, and by this time most of them with their families are on their way to the hidden cruiser. We shall leave this planet in fifteen minutes from now at most. I dare not stay an instant longer than is absolutely necessary. The members of the general's family were bundled, amazed, into the airboat, which immediately flew along a ray laid by Ravendal to the secret rendezvous. In a remote and desolate part of the planet, concealed in the depths of the towering jungle growth, a mammoth space cruiser was receiving her complement of passengers. Airboats, flying at their terrific velocity through the heavy, steaming fog, as closely spaced as their controller rays would permit, flashed signals along their guiding beams, dove into the apparently impenetrable jungle, and added their passengers to the throng pouring into the great vessel. 
As the minute of departure drew near, the feeling of tension aboard the cruiser increased, and vigilance was raised to the maximum. None of the passengers had been allowed senders of any description, and now even the hairline beams guiding the airboats were cut off, and received only when the proper code signal was heard. The doors were shut, no one was allowed outside, and everything was held in readiness for instant flight at the least alarm. Finally, a scientist and his family arrived from the opposite side of the planet, the last member of the organization, and twenty-seven minutes after Ravendall had flashed his signal, the prow of that mighty spaceship reared toward the perpendicular, poising its massive length at the predetermined angle. There it halted momentarily, then disappeared utterly, only a vast column of tortured and shattered vegetation torn from the ground and carried for miles upward into the air by the vacuum of its wake, remaining to indicate the path taken by the flying projectile. Hour after hour, the Fenachrone vessel bored on with its frightful and ever-increasing velocity through the ever-thinning stars. But it was not until the last star had been passed, until everything before them was entirely devoid of light, and until the galaxy behind them began to take on a well-defined lenticular aspect, that Ravendall would consent to leave the controls and to seek his hard-earned rest. Day after day and week after week went by, and the Fenachrone vessel still held the rate of motion with which she had started out. Ravendall and Fenimal sat in the control cabin, staring out through the visiplates, abstracted. There was no need of staring, and they were not really looking, for there was nothing at which to look. Outside the transparent metal hull of the monster, of the trackless void, there was nothing visible. The galaxy, of which our Earth is an infinitesimal moat, the galaxy which former astronomers considered the universe, was so far behind that its immeasurable diameter was too small to affect the vision of the unaided eye. Other galaxies lay at even greater distances away on either side. The galaxy toward which they were making their stupendous flight was as yet untold millions of light-years distance. Nothing was visible. Before their gaze stretched an infinity of emptiness. No stars, no nebula, no meteoric matter, not even the smallest particle of cosmic dust, absolute empty space, absolute vacuum, and absolute zero, absolute nothingness. A concept intrinsically impossible for the most highly trained human mind to grasp. Consciencelessness and heartless monstrosities, though they both were, by heredity and training, the immensity of the appalling lack of anything tangible oppressed them. Ravendo was stern and serious, Fenimal moody. Finally, the latter spoke. It would be endurable if we knew what had happened, or if we ever could know definitely, one way or the other, whether all this was necessary. We shall know, General, definitely. I am certain in my own mind, but after a time when we have settled upon our new home, and when the Overlord shall have relaxed his vigilance, you shall come back to the solar system of the Fenachrone in this vessel, 
or a similar one. I know what you shall find, but the trip shall be made, and you shall yourself see what was once our home planet, a seething sun, second only in brilliance to the parent sun, about which she shall still be revolving. Are we safe even now? What of possible pursuit? asked Fenimal, and the monstrous flame-shot wells of black that were Ravendall's eyes almost emitted tangible fires as he made reply. We are far from safe, but we grow stronger minute by minute. Fifty of the greatest minds our world has ever known have been working from the moment of our departure upon a line of investigation suggested to me by certain things my instruments recorded during the visit of the self-styled overlord. I cannot say anything yet, even to you, except that the day of conquest may not be so far in the future as we have supposed. End of chapter 13 Interstellar Extermination Part 2 In due time, the 906 Fenachrone vessels were all checked off on the model, and the two terrestrials went in search of Drasnik, whom they found in his study, summing up and analyzing a mass of data, facts, and ideas which were being projected in the air around him. Well, our first job's done, Seaton stated. What do you know that you feel like passing around? My investigation is practically complete, replied the first of psychology gravely. I have explored many fenachrone mines, and without exception, I have found them chambers of horror of a kind unimaginable to one of us. However, you are not interested in their psychology, but in facts bearing upon your problem. While such facts were scarce, I did discover a few interesting items. I spied upon them in public and in their most private haunts. I analyzed them individually and collectively, and from the few known facts and from the great deal of guesswork and conjecture there available to me, I have formulated a theory. I shall first give you the known facts. Their scientists cannot direct nor control any ray not propagated through ether, but they can detect one such frequency or band of frequencies which they call infrarays, and which are probably the fifth-order rays, since they lie in the first level below the ether. The detector proper is a type of lamp which gives a blue light at the ordinary intensity of such rays as would come from space or from an ordinary power plant, but gives a red light under strong excitation. Uh-huh, I get that okay, said Seaton. Roval's great-great-great-grandfather had him. I know all about him. Seaton encouraged Drasnik, who had paused with a questioning glance. I know exactly how and why such a detector works. We gave them an alarm, all right, even though we were working on a tight beam from here to there. Our secondary projector there was radiating enough to affect every such detector within a thousand miles. Drasnik continued, Another significant fact is that a great many persons, I learned of some five hundred, and there were probably many more, have disappeared without explanation and without leaving a trace, and it seems that they disappeared 
very shortly after our communication was delivered. One of these was Fenor, the emperor. His family remain, however, and his son is not only ruling in his stead, but is carrying out his father's policies. The other disappearances were all alike and are peculiar in certain respects. First, every man who vanished belonged to the party of postponement, the minority party of the Fenachrone, who believed that the time for the conquest had not yet come. Second, every one of them was a leader in thought in some field of usefulness, and every such field is represented by at least one disappearance, even the army, as General Fenimol, the commander-in-chief, and his whole family are among the absentees. Third and most remarkable, each of the disappearance included an entire family, clear down to children and grandchildren, however young. Another fact is that the Fenachrone Department of Navigation keeps a very close check on all vessels, particularly vessels capable of navigating outer space. Every vessel built must be registered, and its location is always known from its individual tracer ray. No Fenachrone vessel is missing. I also sifted a mass of gossip and conjecture, some of which may bear upon the subject. One belief is that all the persons were put to death by Fenor's secret service, and that the emperor was assassinated in revenge. The most widespread belief, however, is that they have fled. Some hold that they are in hiding in some remote shelter in the jungle, arguing that the rigid registration of all vessels renders a journey of any great length impossible, and that detector screens would have given warning of any vessel leaving the planet. Others think that persons as powerful as Fenimol and Ravendal could have built any vessel they chose, with neither the knowledge nor the consent of the Department of Navigation, or that they could have stolen a Navy vessel, destroying its records, and that Ravendal certainly could have so neutralized the screens that they would have given no alarm. These believe that the absent ones have migrated to some other solar system or to some other planet of the same sun. One old general loudly gave it as his opinion that the cowardly traitors had probably fled clear out of the galaxy, and that it would be a good thing to send the rest of the party of postponement after them. There, in brief, are the salient points of my investigation in so far as it concerns your immediate problem. A good many straws pointing this way and that, commented Seaton. However, we know that the postponers are just as rabid on the idea of conquering the universe as the others are, only they are a lot more cautious and wouldn't take even a gambler's chance of a defeat. But you've formed a theory. What is it, Drasnik? From my analysis of these facts and conjectures, in conjunction with certain purely psychological indices, which we need not take time to go into now, I am certain that they have left their solar system, probably in an immense vessel, built a long time ago and held in readiness for just such an emergency. I am not certain of their destination, but it is my opinion that they have left this galaxy and are planning upon starting anew upon some suitable planet in some other galaxy from which, at some future date, the conquest of the universe shall proceed as it was originally planned. Great balls of fire, blurted Seaton. They couldn't. 
Not in a million years. He thought a moment, then continued more slowly. But they could, and... With their dispositions, they probably would. You're 100% right, Drasnik. We've got a real job of hunting on our hands now. So long, and thanks a lot. Back in the projector, Seaton prowled about in brown abstraction, his villainous pipe poisoning the circumambient air, while Crane sat, quiet and self-possessed as always, waiting for the nimble brain of his friend to find a way over, around, or through the obstacle confronting them. Got it, Mart, Seaton yelled, darting to the board and setting up one integral after another. If they did leave the planet in a ship, we'll be able to watch them go, and we'll see what they did, anyway, no matter what it was. How? They've been gone almost a month already, protested Crane. We know within a half an hour the exact time of their departure. We'll simply go out the distance light has traveled since that time, gather in the rays given off, amplify them a few billion times, and take a look at whatever went on. But we have no idea of what region of the planet to study, or whether it was night or day at the point of departure when they left. We'll get the council room and trace events from there. Day or night makes no difference. We'll have to use infrared anyway, because of the fog, and that's almost as good at night as in daytime. There is no such thing as absolute darkness upon any planet, anyway, and we've got power enough to make anything visible that happens there, night or day. Mart, I've got power enough here to see and photograph the actual construction of the pyramids of Egypt in that same way, and they were built thousands of years ago. Heavens, what astounding possibilities, breathed Crane. Why, you could... Yes, I could do a lot of things, Satan interrupted him rudely, but right now we've got other fish to fry. I've just got the city we visited. At about the time we were there, General Fenimol, who disappeared, must be in the council room down here right now. I'll retard our projection, so that time will apparently pass more quickly, and we'll duck down there and see what actually did happen. I can heterodyne, combine, and recombine just as though we were watching the actual scene. It's more complicated, of course, since I have to follow it and amplify it, too. But it works out all right. This is unbelievable, Dick. Think of actually seeing something that really happened in the past. Yeah, it's kind of strong, all right. As Dot would say, it's just too perfectly darned outrageous. But we're doing it, ain't we? I know just how and why. When we get some time, I'll shoot the method into your brain. Well, here we are. Peering into the visiplates, the two men were poised above the immense central cone of the capital city of the Fenachrone. Viewing with infrared lights, as they were, the fog presented no obstacles, and the indescribable beauty of the city of concentric rings and the wonderfully luxuriant jungle growth were clearly visible. They plunged down into the council chamber and saw Fenor, Ravendal, and Fenimol deep in conversation. With all the other feats of skill and sorcery you have accomplished, why don't you reconstruct their speech also? asked Crane, with a challenging glance. Well, old doubting Thomas, it may not be absolutely impossible at that. 
It would mean two projectors, however, due to the difference in speed of sound waves and light waves. Theoretically, sound waves also extend to an infinite distance, but I don't believe that any possible detector and amplifier could reconstruct a voice more than an hour or so after it had spoken. It might, though. We'll have to try it sometime and see. You're fairly good at lip-reading, as I remember it. Get as much of it as you can, will you? As though they were watching the scene itself as it happened, which in a sense they were, they saw everything that had occurred. They saw Fenner die, saw the General's family board the airboat, saw the orderly embarkation of Ravindo's organization. Finally, they saw the stupendous take-off of the first intergalactic cruiser, and with that take-off, Seaton went into action. Faster and faster, he drove the fifth-order beam along the track of the fugitive, until the speed was attained beyond which his detecting converters could not hold the ether rays they were following. For many minutes, Seaton stared intently into the visiplate, plotting lines and calculating forces. Then he swung around to Crane. Well, Mart, noble old bean, solving the disappearances was easier than I thought it would be, but the situation as regards wiping out the last of the fenachrone is getting no better fast. I glean from the instruments that they are heading straight out into space away from the galaxy, and I assume that they are using their utmost acceleration. I'll say they're traveling. They are out in absolute space, you know, with nothing in the way and with no intentions of reversing their power or slowing down. They must have had absolute top acceleration on every minute since they left. Anyway, they're so far out already that I couldn't hold even a detector on them, let alone a force that I can control. Well, let's snap into it, fellow, on our way. Just a minute, Dick. Take it easy. What are your plans? Plans? Why worry about plans? Blow up that planet before any more of them get away, and then chase that boat clear to Andromeda, if necessary. Let's go. Calm down and be reasonable. You are getting hysterical again. They have a maximum acceleration of five times the velocity of light. So have we, exactly, since we adopted their own drive. Now, if our acceleration is the same as theirs, and they have a month's start, how long will it take us to catch them? Right again, Mart. I sure was going off half-cocked again, Seaton conceded ruefully, after a moment's thought. They'd always be going a million or so times as fast as we would be, and getting further ahead of us in geometrical ratio. What's your idea? I agree with you that the time has come to destroy the planet of Fenachrone. As for pursuing that vessel through intergalactic space, that is your problem. You must figure out some method of increasing our acceleration. Highly efficient as is this system of propulsion, it seems to me that the knowledge of the Normalinians should be able to improve it in some detail. Even a slight increase in acceleration would enable us to overtake them eventually. Hmm. Seaton, no longer impetuous, was thinking deeply. How far are we apt to have to go? Until we get close enough to them to use your rays, say, half a million light-years. But surely they'll stop sometime. 
Of course, but not necessarily for many years. They are powered and provisioned for a hundred years, you remember, and are going to a distant galaxy. Such a one as Ravendall would not have specified a distant galaxy idly, and the very closest galaxies are so far away that even the fenachrome astronomers, with their reflecting mirrors five miles in diameter, could form only the roughest approximations of the true distances. Our astronomers are all wet in their guesses, then. Their estimates are, without exception, far below the true values. They are not even of the correct order of magnitude. Well, then, let's mop up on that planet. Then we'll go places and do things. Satan had already located the magazines in which the power bars of the Fenachrome war vessels were stored, and it was a short task to erect a secondary projector of force in the Fenachrome atmosphere. Working out of that projector, beams of force seized one of the immense cylinders of plated copper, and at Seton's direction transported it rapidly to one of the poles of the planet, where electrodes of force were clamped upon it. In a similar fashion, seventeen more of the frightful bombs were placed equidistant over the surface of the world of the Fenachrome, so that when they were simultaneously exploded, the downward force would be certain to meet sufficient resistance to assure complete demolition of the entire globe. Everything in readiness, Seaton's hand went to the plunger switch and closed upon it. Then his face, white and wet, he dropped his hand. No use, Mart, I can't do it. It pulls my cork. I know darn well you can't either. I'll yell for help. Have you got it on the infrared? asked Dunark calmly as he shot up into the projector in reply to Seaton's call. I want to see this, all of it. It's on, you're welcome to it. And as the terrestrials turned away, the whole projector base was illuminated by a flare of intense, though subdued light. For several minutes, Dunark stared into the visiplate, savage satisfaction in every line of his fierce green face, as he surveyed the havoc wrought by those eighteen enormous charges of incredible explosive. A nice job of cleanup, Dick, the Osnomian prince reported, turning away from the visiplate. It made a sun of it. The original sun is now quite a splendid double star. Everything was volatized, clear out, far beyond their outermost screen. It had to be done, of course. It was either them or else the rest of the universe, Seaton said jerkily. However, even that fact doesn't make it go down easy. Well, we're done with this projector. From now on, it's strictly up to us and Skylark 3. Let's speed it over there and see if they've got her done yet. They were due to finish up today, you know. It was a silent group who embarked in the little airboat. Halfway to their destination, however, Seaton came out of his blue mood with a yell. Mart, I've got it. We can give the Lark a lot more acceleration than they are getting, and we won't need the assistance of all the mines of Normalin, either. How? By using one of the very heavy metals for fuel. The intensity of the power liberated is a function of atomic weight or atomic number and density, but the fact of liberation depends upon atomic configuration, a fact which you and I figured out long ago. However, our figuring didn't go far enough, it couldn't, 
We didn't know anything then. Copper happens to be the most efficient of the few metals which can be decomposed at all under ordinary excitation, that is, by using an ordinary coil, such as we and the fenachrone both use. But by using special exciters, sending out all the orders of rays necessary to initiate the disruptive processes, we can use any metal we want to. Osnome has unlimited quantities of the heaviest metals, including radium and uranium. Of course, we can't use radium and live, but we can and will use uranium, and that will give us something like four times the acceleration possible with copper. Dunark, what say you snap over there and smelt us a cubic mile of uranium? No, hold it. I'll put a flock of forces on the job. They'll do it quicker, and I'll make them deliver the goods. They'll deliver them fast, too. Believe us. We'll see to that with a ten-ton bar. The uranium bars will be ready to load tomorrow, and we'll have enough power to chase those birds all the rest of our lives. Returning to the projector, Seaton actuated the complex system of forces required for the smelting and transportation of the enormous amount of metal necessary, and as the three men again boarded their aerial conveyance, the power bar and the projector behind them flared into violet incandescence under the load already put upon it by the new uranium mine in distant Osnome. The Skylark lay stretched out over two miles of country, exactly as they had last seen her. But now, instead of being water-white, the ten-thousand-foot cruiser of the void was one jointless, seamless structure of sparkling, transparent, purple Innocent. Entering one of the open doors, they stepped into an elevator and were whisked upward into the control room, in which a dozen of the aged, white-bearded students of Normalin were grouped about a banked and tiered mass of keyboards, which Seaton knew must be the operating mechanism of the extraordinarily complete fifth-order projector he had been promised. Ah, youngsters, you are just in time. Everything is complete, and we are just about to begin loading. Sorry, Roval, but we'll have to make a couple of changes. Have to rebuild the exciter, or build another one. And Seaton rapidly related what they had learned, and what they had decided to do. Of course, uranium is a much more efficient source of power, agreed Roval, and you are to be congratulated for thinking of it. It perhaps would not have occurred to one of us, since the heavy metals of that highly efficient group are very rare here. Building a new exciter for uranium is a simple task, and the converters for the corona loss will, of course, require no change, since their action depends only upon the frequency of the emitted losses, not upon their magnitude. Hadn't you suspected that some of the fenachrone might be going to lead us a lifelong chase? asked Dunark curiously. We have not given the matter a thought, my son, the chief of the five made answer. As your years increase, you will learn not to anticipate trouble and worry. Had we thought and worried over the matter before the time had arrived, you will note that it would have been pain wasted, for our young friend Seaton has avoided that difficulty in a truly scholarly fashion. All set, then, Roval asked Seaton, 
when the forces flying from the projector had built the compound exciter which would make possible the disruption of the atoms of uranium. The metal, enough of it to fill all the spare space in the hull, will be here tomorrow. You might give Crane and me the method of operating this projector, which I see is vastly more complex even than the one in the area of experiment. It's the most complete thing ever seen upon Normalin, replied Roval, with a smile. Each of us installed everything in it that he could conceive of ever being of the slightest use. And since our combined knowledge covers a large field, the projector is accordingly quite comprehensive. Multiple headsets were donned, and from each of the Normalinian brains there poured into the minds of the two terrestrials a complete and minute knowledge of every possible application of the stupendous force control banked in all its mass intricacy before them. Well, that's some outfit, exalted Seaton, in pleased astonishment as the instructions were concluded. It can do anything but lay an egg, and I'm not a darn bit sure that we couldn't make it do that. Well, let's call the girls and show them around this thing that's going to be their home for quite a while. While they were waiting, Dunark led Seaton aside. Dick, will you need me on this trip? he asked. Of course, I knew there was something on your mind when you didn't send me home when you let Irvan, Carfon, and the others go back. No, we're going it alone, unless you want to come along. I did want you to stick around until I got a good chance to talk to you alone. Now will be a good time as any. You and I have traded brains, and besides, we've been through quite a lot of grief together here and there. I want to apologize to you for not passing along to you all the stuff I've been getting here. In fact, I really wish I didn't have to have it myself. Get me? Got you. I'm way ahead of you. Don't want it. Not any part of it. That's why I've stayed away from any chance of learning any of it. And the one reason why I'm going back home instead of going with you. I have just brains enough to realize that neither I nor any other man of my race should have it. By the time we grow up to it naturally, we shall be able to handle it, but not until then. The two brain brothers grasped hands strongly, and Dunark continued in a lighter vein. It takes all kinds of people to make a world, you know, and all kinds of races, except the Fenachrone, to make a universe. With Martinale gone, the evolution of Osmone shall progress rapidly. And while we may not reach the ultimate goal, I have learned enough from you already to speed up our progress considerably. Well, that's that. Had to get it off my chest, although I knew you'd get the idea all right. Here are the girls, Sitar, too. We'll show them around. Seaton's first thought was for the very brain of the ship, the precious lens of neutronium in its thin envelope of the eternal jewel, without which the beam of fifth-order rays could not be directed. He found it a quarter of a mile back from the needle-sharp prow, exactly in the longitudinal axis of the hull, protected from any possible damage by bulkhead after massive bulkhead of impregnable Inasan. Satisfied upon that point, he went in search of the others, who were exploring their vast new spaceship. 
Huge as she was, there was no waste space. Her design was as compact as that of a fine radio set. The living quarters were grouped closely about the central compartment, which housed the power plants, the many ray generators and projectors, and the myriads of controls of the marvelous mechanism for the projection and direction of fifth-order rays. Several large compartments were devoted to the machinery which automatically serviced the vessel, refrigerators, heaters, generators, and purifiers for water and air, and the numberless other mechanisms which would make the cruiser a comfortable and secure home, as well as an invincible battleship, in the heatless, lightless, airless, matterless waste of illimitable intergalactic space. Many compartments were for the storage of food supplies, and these were even then being filled by forces under the able direction of the first of chemistry. All the comforts of home, even to the labels, Seaton grinned, as he read Dole Number 1, upon cans of pineapple which had never been within thousands of light-years of the Hawaiian Islands, and saw quarter after quarter of fresh meat going into the freezer room from a planet upon which no animal other than man had existed for many thousands of years. Nearly all of the remaining millions of cubic feet of space were for the storage of uranium for power, a few rooms already having been filled with ingot inason for repairs. Between the many bulkheads that divided the ship into numberless airtight sections, and between the many concentric skins of purple metal that rendered the vessel spaceworthy and sound, even though slabs many feet thick were to be shown off in any direction, in every nook and cranny could be stored the metal to keep those voracious generators full-fed, no matter how long or how severe the demands for power. Every room was connected through a series of tubular tunnels along which force-propelled cars or elevators slid smoothly, tubes whose walls fell together into airtight seals at any point in case of a rupture. As they made their way back to the great control room of the vessel, they saw something that because of its small size and clear transparency they had not previously seen. Below that room, not too near the outer skin, in a specially built spherical launching space, there was Skylark Two, completely equipped and ready for an interstellar journey on her own account. "'Why, hello, little stranger,' Margaret called. "'Roval, that was a kind thought on your part. Home wouldn't quite be home without our old Skylark, would it, Martin?' "'A practical thought, as well as a kind one,' Crane responded. "'We undoubtedly will have occasion to visit places altogether too small for the really enormous bulk of this vessel. Yes, and who ever heard of a seagoing ship without a small boat? Put in irrepressible Dorothy. She's just too perfectly kippy for words. Sitting up there, isn't she? End of Chapter 14, Part 2「The Extra-Galactic Duel Loaded until her outer skin almost bulged with tightly packed bars of uranium and equipped to meet any emergency of which the combined efforts of the mightiest intellects of Normalin could foresee, 
even the slightest possibility, Skylark Three lay quiescent. Quiescent, but surcharged with power. She seemed to Seaton's tense mind to share his own eagerness to be off. Seemed to be motionlessly straining at her neutral controls in a futile endeavor to leave that unnatural and unpleasant environment of atmosphere and of material substance to soar outward into absolute zero of temperature and pressure, into the pure and undefiled ether which was her natural and familiar medium. The five human beings were grouped near an open door of their cruiser. Before them were the ancient scientists, who for so many days had been laboring with them in their attempt to crush the monstrous race which was threatening the universe. With the elders were the terrestrials' many friends from the country of youth, and surrounding the immense vessel in a throng covering an area to be measured only in square miles were massed myriads of Normalinians. From their task everywhere had come the mental laborers. The country of youth had been left depopulated. Even those who, their life-work done, had betaken themselves to the placid nirvana of the country of age, returned briefly to the country of study to speed upon its way that stupendous ship of peace. The majestic Fodan, the chief of the five, was concluding his address. And may the unknowable force direct your minor forces to a successful conclusion of your task. If, upon the other hand, it should by some unforeseen chance be graven upon the sphere that you are to pass in this supreme venture, you may pass in all tranquility, for the massed intellect of our entire race is here supporting me in my solemn affirmation that the Fenachrome shall not be allowed to prevail. In the name of all Normalin, I bid you farewell. Crane spoke briefly in reply, and the little group of earthly wanderers stepped into the elevator. As they sped upward toward the control room, door after door shot into place behind them, establishing a manifold seal. Seaton's hand played over the controls, and the great cruiser of the void tilted slowly upward until its narrow prow pointed almost directly into the zenith. Then, very slowly at first, the unimaginable mass of the vessel floated lightly upward, with a slowly increasing velocity. Faster and faster she flew, out beyond the measurable atmosphere, out beyond the outermost limits of the green system. Finally, in interstellar space, Seaton threw out superpowered detectors and repelling screens, anchored himself at the driving console with a force, set the power controls at molecular so that the propulsive force affected alike every molecule of the vessel and its contents, and all sense of weight and acceleration lost. He threw in the plunger switch, which released every iota of the theoretically possible power of the driving mass of uranium. Staring intently into the visiplate, he corrected their course from time to time by minute fractions of a second of arc. Then, satisfied at last, he set the automatic forces which would guide them, temporarily, out of their course around any obstacle 
such as the uncounted thousands of solar systems lying in or near their path. He then removed the restraining forces from his body and legs, and with a small pencil of force, wafted himself over to Crane and the two women. Well, Bunch, he stated, matter of fact, we're on our way. We'll be this way for some time, so we might as well get used to it. Any little thing you want to talk over? How long will it take us to catch him? asked Dorothy. Traveling this way isn't half as much fun as it is when you let us have some weight to hold us down. Hard to tell exactly, Dotty. If we had precisely four times their acceleration and had started from the same place, we would, of course, overtake them in just the number of days they had the start of us, since the distance covered at any constant positive acceleration is proportional to the square of the time elapsed. However, there are several complicating factors in the actual situation. We started out not only 29 days behind them, but also a matter of 500,000 light-years of distance. It will take us quite a while to get to their starting point. I can't tell even that very close, as we will probably have to reduce this acceleration before we get out of the galaxy in order to give detectors and repellers time to act on stars and other loose impediments. Powerful as those screens are, and fast as they work, there is a limit to the velocity we can use here in this crowded galaxy. Outside it, in free space, of course, we can open her up again. Then, too, our acceleration is not exactly four times theirs, only 3.9186. On the other hand, we don't have to catch them to go to work on them. We can operate very nicely at 5,000 light centuries. So, there you are. It'll probably be somewhere between 39 and 41 days, but it may be a day or so, more or less. How do you know they're using copper? asked Margaret. Maybe their scientists stored up some uranium and know how to use it. Nope, that's out like a light. First, Mart and I saw only copper bars in their ship. Second, copper is the most efficient metal found in quantity upon their planet. Third, even if they had uranium or any metal of its class, they couldn't use it without a complete knowledge of and ability to handle the fourth and fifth order of rays. It is your opinion, then, that destroying this last fenachrone vessel is to prove as simple a matter as did the destruction of the others? Crane queried pointedly. Hmm. Never thought about it from that angle at all, Mart. You're still the ground and lofty thinker of the outfit, ain't you? Now that you mention it, though, we may find that the last of the Mohegans ain't entirely toothless at that. But say, Mart, how come I'm as wild and cockeyed as I ever was? Roval's a slow and thoughtful old codger, and with his accumulation of knowledge, it looks like I'd be the same way. Far from it, Crane replied. Your nature and mine remain unchanged. Temperament is a basic trait of heredity, and is neither affected nor acquired by increase of knowledge. You acquired knowledge from Roval, Drasnik, and others, as did I. But you are still the flashing genius, and I am still your balance wheel. As for the fenachrome toothlessness 
Now that you have considered it, what is your opinion? Hard to say. They don't know how to control the fifth-order rays, or they wouldn't have run. They've got real brains, though, and they'll have something like 70 days to work on the problem. While it doesn't stand to reason that they could find out much in 70 days, still they may have had a setup of instruments on their detectors that would have enabled them to analyze our fields and thus compute the structure of the secondary projector we use there. If so, it wouldn't take them long to find out enough to give us plenty of grief. But I don't really believe that they knew enough. I don't quite know what to think. They may be easy, and they may not. But easier, hard to get. We're loaded for bear, and I'm pretty sure that we'll pull their corks. So am I, really. But we must consider every contingency. We know that they had at least a detector of fifth-order rays. And if they did have an analytical detector, Seaton interrupted, they'll probably slap a ray on us as soon as we stick our noses out of the galaxy. They may, and even though I do not believe that there is any probability of them actually doing it, it will be well to be armed against the possibility. Right, old top, we'll do that little thing. Uneventful days passed, and true to Seaton's calculation, the awful acceleration with which they had started out could not be maintained. A few days before the edge of the galaxy was reached, it became necessary to cut off the molecular drive and to proceed with an acceleration equal only to that of gravitation at the surface of the Earth. Tired of weightlessness and its attendant discomforts to everyday life, the travelers enjoyed the interlude immensely, but it was all too short. Too soon the stars thinned out ahead of Three's needle prow. As soon as the way ahead of them was clear, Seaton again put on the maximum power of his terrific bars, and held securely at the console, set up a long and involved integral. Ready to transfer the blended and assembled forces to a plunger, he stayed his hand, thought a moment, and turned to Crane. Want some advice, Smart? I thought of setting up three or four courses of five-ply screen on the board, a detector screen on the outside of each course, next to it a repeller, then a full-coverage ether-ray screen, then a zone of force, and a full-coverage fifth-order ray screen as a liner. Then, with all them set up on the board, but not out, throw out a wide detector. The detector would react upon the board at impact with anything hostile and automatically throw out the courses it found necessary. That sounds like ample protection, but I'm not enough of a ray specialist to pass an opinion. Upon what point are you doubtful? About leaving them on the board. The only trouble is that the reaction isn't absolutely instantaneous. Even fifth-order rays would require a millionth of a second or so to set the courses. Now, if they were using ether waves, that would be lots of time to block them. But if they should happen to have fifth-order stuff, it'd get here the same time our own detector impulse would. And it's just barely conceivable that they might give us a nasty jolt before the defenses went out. Nope, I'm developing a cautious streak myself now, when I take time to do it. We've got lots of uranium, 
and I'm going to put one course out. You cannot put everything out, can you? Not quite, but pretty nearly. I'll leave a hole in the ether screen to pass visible light. No, I won't either. You folks can see just as well, even on the direct vision wall plates, with light heterodyned on the fifth. So we'll close all ether bands, absolutely. All we'll have to leave open will be one extremely narrow band upon which our projector is operating, and I'll protect that with a detector screen. Also, I'm going to send out all four courses instead of only one. Then I'll know we're all right. Suppose they find our one band, narrow as it is. Of course, if that were shut off automatically by the detector, we'd be safe, but would we not be out of control? Not necessarily. I see you didn't get quite all this stuff over the educator. The other projector worked that way, on one fixed band, out of the 9,000-odd possible. But this one is an ultra-projector, an improvement invented at the last minute. Its carrier wave can be shifted at will from one band of the fifth order to any other one, and I'll bet a hat that's one thing the Fenachrome haven't got. Any other suggestions? All right, let's get busy. A single, light, quick-acting detector was sent out ahead of four courses of five-ply screen. Then Seaton's fingers again played over the keys. Fabricating a detector screen so tenuous that it would react to nothing weaker than a copper power bar in full operation, and with so nearly absolute zero resistance that it could be driven at the full velocity of his ultra-projector. Then, while Crane watched the instruments closely, and while Dorothy and Margaret watched the faces of their husbands with only mild interest, Seaton drove home the plunger that sent that prodigious and ever-widening fan ahead of them, with a velocity unthinkable millions of times that of light. For five minutes, until the far-flung screen had gone as far as it could be thrown by the utmost power of the uranium bar, the two men stared at the unresponsive instruments. Then Seaton shrugged his shoulders. I had a hunch, he remarked with a grin. They didn't wait for us a second. I don't care for some, says they. I've already had any. They're running in a straight line with full power on and don't intend to stop or slow down. How do you know, asked Dorothy, by the distance? How far away are they? I know, Red Top, by what I didn't find out with that screen I just put out. It didn't reach them, and it went so far that the distance is absolutely meaningless, even expressed in parsecs. Well, a stern chase is proverbially a long chase, and I guess this one isn't going to be any exception. Every eight hours, Seaton launched his all-embracing ultra-detector, but day after day passed, and the instruments remained motionless after each cast of that gigantic net. For several days, the galaxy behind them had been dwindling from a mass of stars down to a huge bright lens down to a small faint lens, down to a faintly luminous patch. At the previous cast of the detector, it had still been visible as a barely perceptible point of light 
in the highest telescopic power of the visiplate. Now, as Dorothy and Seaton, alone in the control room, stared into that visiplate, everything was blank and black, sheer, indescribable blackness, the utter and absolute absence of everything visible or tangible. This is awful, Dick. It's just too darn horrible. It simply scares me pea-green, she shuddered as she drew herself to him, and he swept both his mighty arms around her in a soul-satisfying embrace. It's all right, darling. That stuff out there'd scare anybody. I'm scared purple myself. It isn't in any finite mind to understand anything infinite or absolute. There's one redeeming feature, though, cuddle pup. We're together. You chirped it, lover. Dorothy returned his caresses with all her old-time fervor and enthusiasm. I feel lots better now. If it gets to you that way, too, I know it's perfectly normal. I was beginning to think maybe I was yellow or something. But maybe you're kidding me. She held him off at arm's length, looking deep into his eyes, then reassured, went back into his arms. Nope, you feel it, too. And her glorious auburn head found its natural resting place in the curve of his mighty shoulder. Yellow, you? Seaton pressed his wife closer still and laughed aloud. Maybe, but so is picric acid, and so is nitroglycerin, and so is pure gold. Flatterer. Her low, entrancing chuckle bubbled over. But you know, I just revel in it. I'll kiss you for that. It is awfully lonesome out here, without even a star to look at, she went on after a time, then laughed again. If the Cranes and Shiro weren't along, we'd really be alone at last, wouldn't we? I'd say we would. That reminds me of something. According to my figures, we might have been able to detect the fenachrone on that last test, but we didn't. Think I'll try him again before we turn in. Once more he flung out that tenuous net of force, and, as it reached the extreme limit of its travel, the needle of the micro-anmeter flickered slightly, barely moving off its zero mark. We will be, he yelled. Mart, we're on em. Close, demanded Crane, hurrying into the control room upon his beam. Anything but. Barely touched them. Current, something less than a thousandth of a microampere, on a million to one step up. However, it proves our ideas are okay. The next day, Skylark 3 was running on Eastern Standard Time, of the terrestrial United States of America, the two mathematicians covered sheet after sheet of paper with computations and curves. After checking and rechecking the figures, Seaton shut off the power, released the molecular drive, and applied acceleration of 29.602 feet per second, and five human beings breathed as one a profound sigh of relief as an almost normal force of gravitation was restored to them. Why the let-up, asked Dorothy. They're an awful long ways off yet, aren't they? Why not hurry up and catch them? Because we're going infinitely faster than they are now. If we kept up full acceleration, we'd pass them so fast that we couldn't fight them at all. This way, 
We'll still be going a lot faster than they are when we get close to them, but not enough faster to keep us from maneuvering relatively to their vessel if things should go that far. Guess I'll take another reading on them. I do not believe that I should, Crane suggested thoughtfully. After all, they may have perfected their instruments, and yet may not have detected that extremely light touch of our ray last night. If so, why put them on guard? They're probably on guard all right, without having to be put there, but it's a sound idea anyway. Along the same line, I'll release the fifth-order screens with the fastest possible detector on guard. We're just about within reach of a light copper-driven ray right now. But it's a cinch that they can't send anything heavy this far. And if they think we're overconfident, so much the better. There, he continued, after a few minutes at the keyboard, all set. If they put a detector on us, I've got a force set to make a noise like a New York City fire siren. If pressed, I'll reluctantly admit that in my opinion, we're carrying caution to a point 10,000 degrees below the absolute zero of sanity. I'll bet my shirt that we won't hear a yip out of them before we touch them off. Furthermore, the rest of his sentence was lost in a crescendo bellow of sound. Seaton, still at the controls, shut off the noise, studied his meters carefully, and turned around the crane with a grin. You win the shirt, Mart. I'll give it to you next Wednesday, when my other one comes back from the laundry. It's a fifth-order detector ray, coming in beautifully on band 4750, right in the middle of the order. Aren't you going to put a ray on him? asked Dorothy in surprise. Nope. What's the use? I can read theirs as well as I could one of my own. Maybe they know that, too. If they don't, We'll let him think we're coming along, as innocent as Mary's little lamb. So I'll let their ray stay on us. It's too thin to carry anything, and if they thicken it up much, I've got an axe set to chop it off. Seaton whistled, a merry, lilting refrain, as his fingers played over the stops and keys. Why, Dick, you seem actually pleased about it. Margaret was plainly ill at ease. Sure I am. I never did like to drown baby kittens, and it kind of goes against the grain to stab a guy in the back when he ain't even looking, even if he is a fenachrone. If they can fight back some, I'll get mad enough to blow em up happy. But suppose they fight back too hard? They can't. The worst that can possibly happen is that we can't lick them. They certainly can't lick us, because we can outrun em. If we can't get them alone, we'll beat it back to Normalin and bring up reinforcements. I'm not so sure, Crane spoke slowly. There is, I believe, a theoretical possibility that sixth-order rays exist. Would an extension of the methods of detection of fifth-order rays reveal them? Sixth? Sweet spirits of nitre. Nobody knows anything about them. However, I've had one surprise already, so maybe your suggestion isn't as crazy as it sounds. We've got three or four days yet before either side can send anything except on the sixth, so I'll find out what I can do. He flew at the task, 
and for the next three days could hardly be torn from it for rest. But... Okay, Mart, he finally announced. They exist all right, and I can detect them. Look here. And he pointed to a tiny receiver, upon which a small lamp flared in brilliant scarlet light. Are they sending them? No, fortunately. They're coming from our bar. See, it shines blue when I put a grounded shield between it and the bar, and stays blue when I attach it to their detector ray. Can you direct them? Not a chance in the world. That means a lifetime, probably many lifetimes of research, unless somebody uses a fairly complete pattern of them close enough to this detector so that I can analyze it. It's a good deal like calculus in that respect. It took thousands of years to get it in the first place, but it's easy when somebody that already knows it shows you how it goes. The Fenachrone learned to direct fifth-order rays so quickly, then, by an analysis of our fifth-order projector there? Our secondary projector, yes. They must have had some neutronium in stock, too, but it would have been funny if they hadn't at that. They've had intra-atomic power for ages. Silent and grim, he seated himself at the console, and for an hour he wove an intricate pattern of forces upon the inexhaustible supply of keys afforded by the ultra-projector before he once touched the plunger. "'What are you doing? I followed you for a few hundred steps, but could go no farther.' "'Merely a little safety-first stuff, in case they should send any real pattern of sixth-order rays. The setup will analyze it, record the complete analysis, throw out a screen against every frequency of the pattern.' throw on the molecular drive, and pull us back toward the galaxy at full acceleration, while switching the frequency of our carrier wave a thousand times a second to keep them from shooting a hot one through our open band. It'll do it all in about a millionth of a second, too. I want to get us all back alive, if possible. Hmm. They shut off their ray. They know we've tapped onto it. Well, war's declared now. We'll see what we can see. Transferring the assembled beam to a plunger, he sent out a secondary projector toward the fenachrone vessel, as fast as it could be driven, close behind a widespread detector net. He soon found the enemy cruiser, but so immense was the distance that it was impossible to hold the projection anywhere in its neighborhood. They flashed beyond it and through it, and upon all sides of it, but the utmost delicacy of the controls would not permit of holding even upon the immense bulk of the vessel, to say nothing of holding upon such a relatively tiny object as the power bar. As they flashed repeatedly through the warship, they saw piecemeal and sketchily her formidable armament and the hundreds of men of her crew, each man at battle station at the controls of some frightful engine of destruction. Suddenly, they were cut off as a screen closed behind them. The Earthmen felt an instant of unreasoning terror as it seemed that one half of their peculiar dual personalities vanished utterly. Seaton laughed. That was a funny sensation, wasn't it? It just means that they've climbed a tree and pulled the tree up after them. I do not like the odds, Dick, 
Crane's face was grave. They have many hundreds of men, all trained, and we are only two. Yes, only one, for I count for nothing at those controls. All the better, Mart. This board more than makes up the difference. They've got a lot of stuff, of course, but they haven't got anything like this control system. Their captain's got to issue orders, whereas I've got everything right under my hands, not so uneven as they think. Within battle range at last, Seaton hurled his utmost concentration of direct forces under the impact of which three courses of phenochrome defensive screens flared through the ultraviolet and went black. There, the massed direct attack was stopped. At what cost, the enemy alone knew, and the phenochrome countered instantly and in a manner totally unexpected. Through the narrow slit in the fifth-order screen through which Seaton was operating, in the bare one-thousandth of a second that it was open, so exactly synchronized and timed that the screens did not even glow as it went through the narrow opening, a gigantic beam of heterodyned force struck full upon the bow of the Skylark, near the sharply pointed prow, and the stubborn metal instantly flared, blinding white, and exploded outward in puffs of incandescent gas under the awful power of that titanic thrust, through four successive skins of Inasan, the theoretical ultimate of possible strength, toughness, and resistance, that frightful beam drove before the automatically reacting detector closed the slit and the impregnable defensive screens, driven by their mighty uranium bars, flared into incandescent defense. Driven as they were, they held, and the fenachrome, finding that particular attack useless, shut off their power. Well, they sure have got something, Seaton exclaimed in unfeigned admiration. They sure gave us a solid kick that time. We will now take time out for repairs. Also, I'm going to cut our slit down to a width of one kilocycle, if I can possibly figure out a way of working on that narrow a band. And I'm going to step up our shifting speed to a hundred thousand. It's a good thing they built this ship of ours in a lot of layers. If that had gone through the interior, we would have been punctured for fair. You might weld up those holes, Mart, while I see what I can do here. Then Seaton noticed the women, white and trembling, upon a seat. What's the matter? Cheer up, kids. You ain't seen nothing yet. That was just a couple of little preliminary love taps, like two boxers kind of feeling each other out in the first ten seconds of the first round. Preliminary love taps, repeated Dorothy, looking into Seaton's eyes and being reassured by the serene confidence she read there. But they hit us and hurt us badly. Why, there's a hole in our skylark as big as a house, and it goes through four or five layers. Yes, but we're not hurt a bit. They're easily fixed, and we've lost nothing but a few tons of inosan and uranium. We've got lots of spare metal. I don't know what I did to him any more than he knows what he did to us, but I'll bet my other shirt that he knows he's been nudged. Repairs completed, and the changes made in the methods of projection, Seaton actuated the rapidly shifting slit and peered through it at the enemy vessel. Finding their screens still up, 
he directed a complete coverage attack upon them with four bars, while with the entire mass power of the remaining generators concentrated into one frequency, he shifted that frequency up and down the spectrum, probing, probing, ever probing with that gigantic beam of intolerable energy, feeling for some crack, however slight, into which he could insert that shearing seat of concentrated destruction. Although much of the available power of the fenachrone was pre-force devoted to repelling the continuous attack of the terrestrials, they maintained an equally continuous attack offensive. And in spite of the narrowness of the open slit and the rapidity with which that slit was changing from frequency to frequency, enough of the frightful forces came through to keep the ultra-powered defensive screens radiating far into the violet and the utmost power of the refrigerating system proving absolutely useless against the concentrated beams being employed. Mass after mass of Inocent was literally blown from the outer and secondary skins of the Skylark by the comparatively tiny jets of force that leaked through the momentarily open slit from time to time, as exact synchronization was accidentally obtained. Seaton, grimly watching his instruments, glanced at Crane, who, calm but watchful at his console, was repairing the damage as fast as it was done. They're sending more stuff, Mart, and it's getting hotter to handle. That means they're building more projectors. We can play that game, too. They're using up their fuel reserves fast, but we're bigger than they are, carry more metal, and it's more efficient metal, too. Only one way out of it, I guess. What say we put in enough generators to smother them down by brute force, no matter how much power it takes? Why don't you use some of those awful copper shells, or aren't we close enough yet? Dorothy's low voice came clearly, so utterly silent was that frightful combat. Close? We're still better than 200,000 light-years apart. There may have been longer-range battles than this somewhere in the universe, but I doubt it. As for copper, even if we could get it to them, it'd be just like so many candy kisses compared to the stuff we're both using. Dear girl, there are fields of force extending for thousands of miles from each of these vessels beside which the exact center of the biggest lightning flash you ever saw would be a dead area. He set up a series of integrals, and machine after machine, in a space left vacant by the rapidly vanishing store of uranium. There appeared inside the fourth skin of the Skylark a row of gigantic generators, each one adding its hellish output to the already inconceivable stream of energy being directed at the foe. As that frightful flow increased by leaps and bounds, the intensity of the fenachrone attack diminished, and finally it ceased altogether, as every iota of the enemy's power became necessary for the maintenance of the defenses. Still greater grew the stream of force from the Skylark, and now that the attack had ceased, Seaton opened the slit wider and stopped its shifting in order to still further increase the efficiency of his terrible weapon. Face set in a fighting mask, and eyes hard as gray iron, deeper and deeper 
he drove his now irresistible forces. His flying fingers were upon the keys of his console. His keen and merciless eyes were in a secondary projector near the now doomed ship of the Fenachrone, directing masterfully his terrible attack. As the output of his generators still increased, Seaton began to compress a searing hollow sphere of seething energy upon the furiously straining defensive screens of the Fenachrone. Course after course of the heaviest possible screen was sent out, driven by massed batteries of copper now disintegrating at the rate of tons in every second, only to flare through the ultraviolet and to go down before that dreadful, that irresistible onslaught. Finally, as the inexorable sphere still contracted, the utmost effort of the defenders could not keep their screens away from their own vessel, and simultaneously the prow and the stern of the Fenachrone cruiser was bared to that awful field of force in which no possible substance could endure for even the most infinitesimal instant of time. There was a sudden cessation of all resistance, and those titanic forces, all directed inward, converged upon a point with a power behind which there was the inconceivable energy of 400,000 tons of uranium being disintegrated at the highest possible rate, short of instant disruption. In that same instant of collapse, the enormous mass of power copper in the Fenachrome cruiser and the vessel's every atom, alike of structure and contents, also exploded into pure energy at the touch of that unimaginable field of force. In that awful moment before Seaton could shut off his power, it seemed to him that space itself must be obliterated by the very concentration of the unknowable and incalculable forces there unleashed, must be swallowed up and lost in the utterly indescribable brilliance of the field of radiance, driven to a distance of millions upon incandescent millions of miles from the place where the last representative of the monstrous civilization of the Fenachrone had made their last stand against the forces of universal peace. End of chapter 15 Epilogue The three-dimensional, moving, talking, almost living picture being shown simultaneously in all the viewing areas throughout the innumerable planets of the galaxy, faded out, and the image of an aged, white-bearded Normalian appeared and spoke in the galactic language. As is customary, the showing of this picture has opened the celebration of our great galactic holiday, Civilization Day. As you all know, it portrays the events leading up to and making possible the formation of the League of Civilization by a mere handful of planets. The League now embraces all of this, the first galaxy, and is spreading rapidly throughout the universe. Varied are the physical forms, and varied are the mentalities of our almost innumerable races of beings. But in civilization, we are becoming one, since those backward people, who will not cooperate with us, are rendered impotent to impede our progress among the more enlightened. It is peculiarly fitting 
that the one who has just been chosen to head the Galactic Council, the first person of a race other than one of those of the Central System, to prove himself able to wield justly the vast powers of that office, should be a direct descendant of two of the revered persons whose deeds of olden times we have just witnessed. I present to you my successor as Chief of the Galactic Council, Richard Ballinger Seaton, the 14th hundred sixty-ninth of Earth. End of Epilogue Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas End of Skylark 3 by E. E. Doc Smith